what is the cerebral cortex first of all what what, what is it what's its purpose Right, so so you were to look at any mammalian brain, but you know, primarily human brain from the outside. Um, pretty much everything you see uh, when you see an image of a brain from the outside is cerebral cortex. Um, it looks like it's most of the brain, but it, in reality, it's only a relatively thin sheet of tissue that covers uh, with all these wrinkles, uh, sulci and gyri, um, the brain. There's a lot more brain inside, uh, deep uh, uh, under the cortex. But the cortex is this kind of shit, you know, where we see all these uh, wrinkles um, that contains uh, what we think is is one of, of the most, uh, you know, evolved uh, pieces of uh, brain that, that we have. It is distinctively large in primates compared to other uh, mammals. And it's particularly um, developed uh, in in humans, and you can do a lot of of stuff without a cortex. Um, you can, you know, to some extent, you can probably move. You can probably um, um, uh, develop a number of of important behaviors, but um, very little of what we do that you know distinguishes us as humans. Our ability to plan, to execute ideas, to create. To communicate, um, to imagine the future, um, um, to relate to other people in a meaningful way—it's all linked to the function of of our human cortex. So it's a fairly important uh, piece of tissue, and and it's it's also very important for you know learning you know specific um, behaviors, even even complicated motor tasks. At some point, require the cortex to kind of direct the learning process. Eventually. It gets delegated to uh, to other areas, so like you know, driving or you know, riding a, a, a bicycle is something that eventually you do on automatic mode. But at the beginning, the cortex is very important for learning those kind of fine um, motor motor skills. So um, obviously, there are many other you know regions in, in the brain that are very important uh, for us, but the cortex is one of them. Uh, of, of the perhaps most uh, unique among primates, and, and that include obviously humans. And tell us a little bit about the relationship between mental health conditions, uh, neurodevelopmental conditions, so schizophrenia, autism, and abnormalities in the cerebral cortex. What, what What's the link there? Right. So, so uh, until relatively recent, we have very little, you know, direct link. And I, I guess that there are several uh, elements that, you know, have brought everything together. One is that, as I was describing, a lot of the things that actually go wrong in, in many um, neurological and psychiatric conditions are, are related to, you know, what distinguishes us as, as human beings, you know, ability to communicate or ability to relate and, and that sort of thing. Um, so that absolutely suggests that the cortex is important. And, and there's fairly good evidence um, from imaging studies, non-invasive studies in humans, that the function of the cortex is, is compromised. Now, another important piece of evidence is that many of these conditions, many of these alterations um, occur very early in, in the postnatal development um, of, of humans, if you take, for example, you know, very, you know, autism, early onset, you know, around two, three years, typically, um, many of these conditions cause with epilepsy, and, and that epilepsy happens very early also in life. And even people that has, you know, end up having, for example, psychosis, or, you know, schizophrenia, or other type of psychosis, 
Um, we now also know that you know many of them have uh, some other problems earlier um, in their lives, suggesting that again, you know, there's something with how you build uh, uh, the brain that actually impact uh, these uh, these conditions. And then perhaps the last kind of final piece of of evidence that is uh, bringing all this together is that um, we know many of these developmental conditions have a, a genetic um, origin um, that doesn't mean that it's um, always hereditary. There's a lot of kind of um, new mutations that, that show up in the germline, for example, that affect um, uh, these conditions. But in general, we know that, you know, changes in a specific genes are linked to uh, some of these uh, conditions. Again, it's not the only uh, cause of these conditions, um, uh, some environment factors also influence, but, you know, um, I would say that, you know, a, a large fraction of the risk uh, comes from changes in, in our genes. And what we now know is that, you know, we're beginning to to learn what, you know, what are these genes. And what we know is that these genes are important for precisely developing our brains. So it all kind of, kind of start to, to, you know, collapse into, you know, same idea that um, changes in our, you know, genetic uh, makeup, you know, cause our brain to develop in a slightly different way. I like to talk about trajectories of brain development is, is, it's not that you're missing a, a piece in a puzzle. It's just that your brain is forming or developing in a slightly different way than, than, you know, what you consider, you know, average on, on population. And that puts you at risk of, of developing uh, one of these uh, conditions very early in life or sometimes, you know, at the end of your teenage uh, uh, years. And paint a picture for us of your lab and the kind of work that you're doing. Our lab is extremely, extremely diverse. Um, we are we're essentially a wet lab in a sense. So we we do a lot of diet experiments, and we mostly use animal models. You know, typically the mouse to uh, to study brain development. Um, although over the last few years, we're beginning to do a bit more with uh, with humans. Not not. As most people do, which you know, it's like using, for example, um, non-invasive uh, imaging, but actually to create um, some sort of avatar models of human brain development. So we can take cells, you know, from the skin, for example, of a patient, and from there transform them in neurons, and kind of grow them in a petri dish. Um, as I said, as a small avatar of a small piece of a brain to um, to also test what happens with with uh, human uh, human neurons. These models are closer to humans because obviously they are derived from uh, uh, people, um, but they they never develop in in the same way as 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 you know we do in vivo. So using animal models like um, mice, for example, is a very good way of of testing some of the ideas we have about uh, how the brain develops. And and essentially, what we're trying to do is to understand what those genes that we know are linked to developmental disorders that we know. Um, mutations in those genes cause um, or, or increase heavily the risk of developing one of these conditions. We're trying to understand what they actually do um, during brain development, um, which I think is going to be a fundamental uh, aspect for first understanding the disorders better. What is the you know uh, cause, the root of of the problem, and second to kind of target new therapies in in a slightly more uh, directed kind of way. Thank you.
If you go back 20 or 30 years and look at mental health genetics, people were saying, you know, we'll find the gene for schizophrenia and then we'll sort out the problem. But obviously what we've discovered is that it's much more complicated than that. The last 10, 20 years has been amazing and, and the advance in, in genetics is, is incredible. We now have, you know, great certainty about what genes are uh, linked to these conditions. It's, it's probably only the tip of the iceberg. And, you know, there are, there are two large classes of, of uh, variation in these genes in, in, in a very small fraction of the cases. Um, uh, these are mutations in in you know, relatively few number of genes um, that has what we call high penetrance. So a mutation is a rare mutation in, in one of these genes is very likely to cause uh, uh, a disease. It's kind of a massive change in that gene. For example, the gene is no longer, you know, being uh, functional in in uh, in the cells in, in, in the brain. Um, on the other hand, and probably this is the most uh, uh, abundant uh, case, you could have... Um, hundreds of very small changes in the genes and none of the changes on their own is very important on its own but you know is is the summation of these you know dozens or hundreds of changes that may cause the uh, problem um and although this might be the most common it's very difficult to attack from an experimental point of view so we're focusing on kind of the big guns the you know the very big changes to try to see what are the main processes that are affected in in brain development but as i was saying you know we now have the genes on one side so we we have that information we know if you want the plans to make up um uh, our brain and we know the final product which is our you know behavior and with you know somehow compromise um what is in between in, is is a black box and that black box is essentially brain development so um, what we need to do is to link these two things. We need to understand how these very important genes contribute to brain development to be able to know, you know, at what point and in what kind of processes we are deviating from uh, normality. Now, this is, you know, um, I'll talk about this in in uh, uh, in my presentation next week. And there, there are no simple solutions for very complex uh, problems, and there is this this indeed a, a very complex um, uh, problem. Um, for example, you know one hypothesis or theory about um, some of these conditions is that you know, in the cortex we essentially have two main classes of neurons: ones that provide excitation and ones that provides inhibition. And we know that the balance of the function of these two. Um, populations is very important and and that is kind of a graphic idea that is relatively easy to see you know you have a gene and a gene and you know you cannot have too much excitation without balancing uh, inhibition now this as a concept works well but you know in the brain probably in the cortex only we have over you know between 50 and 100 different types of inhibitory cells that are you know are doing completely different things so the devil is in the details. It's not just as simple as you know. Let's fix this balance between A and B. It's it's a very large um, a set of variables that we need to understand and you know eventually um, elucidate where the problems arise in each in each of the cases. So I think that in that sense, um, neuroscience may contribute to solving this problem by you know identifying you know precisely, for example when and where specifically these genes are important during brain development and you know we need to get that level of detail to be able to um 
to somehow predict how you know, these brains are, are built in a slightly different way. And that may actually begin to help us to, you know, to think what is the way, you know, we're going to try to uh, to fix the problem. We, we will not be able to use um, big guns uh, to solve this problem. It's going to require very precise, um, you know, sort of interventions. And, and, you know, I predict that these are going to be fairly tailored to, I wouldn't say all the way down to a single individual, but we will need to stratify these conditions much better um, um, link it to the you know, underlying biology to be able to uh, come up with you know reasonable ther therapies. I speak to a lot of different scientists from a lot of different fields. So I spoke to Robin Murray for this podcast last week, and he was talking about you know fifty years of schizophrenia and our understanding of schizophrenia as a thing, um, and how that's developed in his career. And he was talking about you know the the real importance of understanding not just the brain development side of things, not just the genetic side of things, but also obviously the social environment and life experiences. And, you know, we didn't think much about social adversity or child abuse 50 years ago in relation to schizophrenia, but we understand now it's really important. It feels like it's easier for scientists like you to understand what's going on in, you know, that field of research and it's for people who work in that field of research to know what the hell you're talking about and I wonder if there's something that we need to do better in terms of collaboration and in terms of science communication across these still quite siloed areas to actually bring together the real solution yes I I think that you know I'll, I'll say two things uh, there one and I think that we are achieving this at uh, our faculty at the IOPPN is that you need a constant um, dialogue between clinical scientists and basic scientists. And I would say that, you know, at least for me as, as a kind of fundamental discovery scientist, being able to talk to my clinical colleagues is extremely valuable because they they are the ones that can actually provide the guidance of what is actually relevant for the patients. And, and you know, in that sense, it's it's good to go away from, you know, kind of textbook definitions and really begin to think about, you know, what is the actual problem that needs fixing? Um, what are the symptoms? What are the problems that these people are experiencing and, and that we can actually tackle and, you know, not not just from an academic point of view. But also, as you, you were saying, um, you know, we're learning a lot more about um, how, for example, em environmental conditions uh, have a, a huge impact on um, on, you know, disorders like like schizophrenia now that doesn't happen through any magical uh, process um it happens you know adversity for example it happens because it actually influences physically the development of your brain so if you're raised you know in adverse conditions if you know social or you know environmental you know um, food deprivation many other things will affect the way your brain develop and will you know render a brain that it's you know functional but it's at risk of you know sliding into into a non-functional uh kind of uh state i mean if you think about it um and I, i'm really very interested in this interface you know psychology largely deals with people whose i would say hardware uh, it's perfectly fine um or reasonably fine um but um 
but needs to find you know ways of of dealing with their mental processes to help them to cope with you know whatever conditions or adversities they may have. But you know we we tend to think that you know that that field of psychology generally leads with you know deals and help people whose you know hardware to some extent it's perfectly fine. It's but they need to you know identify the kind of mental processes and tools that will help them to um, to uh, uh, to have a stronger, you know, personality and being able to cope with adversity and that sort of thing. Um, but if you think about it, it this is a very thin, there's not such a thing as a, you know, perfectly fine brain and, and a perfectly a normal uh, brain. It's 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 sort of a of a continuum, right, of, you know, brains that have formed in different ways. And in some cases, we obviously recognize that there's a pathology that is something that has been built in a slightly um, functional or non-functional uh, way. Um, but you will require the interaction between specialists of different um, in different um, uh, fields to be able to uh, deal with it. And at the end, you know, it all physically impact um, uh, your brain. And you know, behavioral therapy, for example, in psychosis, people uh, coping with mental health problems works because you essentially modify connections in your brain, right? So through these, you know, um, behavioral uh, processes, again, not magical, you are just modifying your brain secrets um, uh, because the brain retains such an amazing plasticity even in the uh, in the adult uh, in the adult brain. Um, so I agree with uh, uh, with well, with Scott. You said earlier, it, you you are going to need this kind of multidisciplinary approaches to uh, to uncover, you know, uh, what was wrong in these conditions. I, I would say that um, neuroscientists would tend to go to the easiest uh, possible experiment. And in this case, you know, if you take the spectrum of of problems that 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 interfere with mental health, um, the genetics is is the easiest problem. Is the you know we want you know the one variable change um, uh, you know as defined as possible, and then we can look at the outcome, which is already extremely complex because the brain is a very difficult place to study. Um, any other thing, you know, as I was saying before, instead of the rare mutation, you know, it would be probably better to model, you know, hundreds of small mutations. But that experiment is a lot more difficult. And if you go to, you know, um, environment, you know, conditions, for example, adversity, that's an even, you know, farther multivariable complex thing. What is it? Is it the relation with your parents? Is the social relationship? Is the food you take? Is the fact that you you are in an environment in which there is drug use, you know, what What of all the, you know, what all those uh, factors, you know, dealing with adversity is influencing uh, brain development. So I, I would say that, you know, from our perspective, all those, you know, we recognize that those are very, very important, but we tend always to, you know, uh, go to the uh, kind of minimum um, common denominator. What is the simplest experiment we can do um, considering the whole complexity of, of the system? Um, I would say, you know, it, we will evolve. I mean, over the next, you know, 10, 20 years, we will be able to do more complicated uh, experiments once we understand a bit better, um, you know, what happens on the simple ones. You've given one of the keynote speeches at the 2023 IOPPN Research Festival. Give us a little taster of what you're going to be talking about there. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to... Uh, to give an overview of what, what the lab has done over the last uh, uh, few years. but And I think that I will use a few examples to convey, you know, some of the ideas that we 
we have discussed uh, uh, today, um, the importance of detail and you know understanding um, precisely you know um, you know genes that are linked to to disorders when they are expressed during brain development, what cell types specifically require these genes to develop uh, normally, um, and our kind of progress of of trying to to do that. Um, and then the second idea is this idea of brain plasticity on how almost every process in brain development is linked to something else and how even very small changes um, uh, during development, you know, have cascading consequences, um, the brain in trying to cope, to adapt to these um, changes. And, you know, what we have, you know, been learning about this uh, uh, using some of the animal models that we are uh, uh, we are studying. So, you know, basically, you know, um, some examples of our recent research around these ideas. Mm -hmm.